Well, we are excited about uh, promoting Rain Ministries to you. We do have a small portion of a mission trip to a remote people group in Mexico that we are participating in by way of reminder. And next Sunday is the deadline to get in an application if you wish to be considered to go. You need to see Jerry Zeller right there, and Jerry can give you an application or email you an application. And again, we need to get that back by next Sunday so we can have interviews with potential team members and go from there. We, we think we might be able to send as many as three. It's either two or three, as Jerry tells me, from our church as we partner with our friends in Tijuana to go down to serve. So let Jerry know if you have interest, please. Also, as a reminder, women's retreat sign-up continues. You can see Sharon Farrington or Mindy Colton about that. There's um, it's a little bit of a complexity because you can go, ladies, as I understand it, for the entire weekend or you can come back early. That's, of course, up to you. It's a Friday night through Sunday retreat. If, for some reason, you want to go through Sunday, but obligations here Sunday morning would prohibit you, please don't let them prohibit you. All right, we can work around that. We just need to know, hey, I'm going to the women's retreat through Sunday. I can't serve an X, Y, and Z. And we will work around that. That is no problem at all. If you want to go through Sunday, please, please feel, as it were, quote-unquote, released to do so, we want God to minister to you in every way possible. And so again, see Sharon, see Mindy to sign up or for more information. There are needs in our children's ministry. So members, be aware of that. I emailed you this week about that. See Joshua or Linda for more information on ways you might serve in that vital gospel ministry in our midst, in our children's ministry. And lastly, again, I wanted to say a welcome back to Fred Powell. Right there, Fred, welcome. I neglected to do so last Sunday, and I am sorry about that, Fred. It's so good to see you as he's recovering, and uh, we've missed you, and it's just so good to see your joyful face once again. Thanks for being here. All right, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, there are Bibles in the back also, and we'll show verses on the screen behind me. You might be confused as I say Mark 12, and I understand that. And that's because we're supposed to be, and we are in, a little series ending the book of Hebrews, right? We're in Hebrews chapter 13. So you expected me to say, open to Hebrews chapter 13, but I didn't. And here's why. This is really a part two of what we saw last week in Hebrews 13. So think of it that way. This is part two of what we saw last week. Because last week, last week we saw this passage in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. We studied the following verses. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he, God, God has said, quote, I will never leave you nor forsake you, like we sang. So we can confidently respond and say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's this wonderful call to trust. To trust God more than our finances to care for us. And today, I want to look with you at Mark 12 for a living illustration of that passage. I want to see with you a living illustration of this call to trust. 
I want to see with you someone whose heart just seems to be gripped by the faithfulness of God. Someone whose heart seems to be filled with trust such that they are living in light of those realities. I wanted to introduce you to a real-life illustration of what we learned last week. So picture the scene now. Picture the scene in Mark chapter 12. It is the time of the Passover. Passover is approaching. Pilgrims are filling the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus is teaching. Verse 38. Mark chapter 12, verse 38. And in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense, a show, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And we are at the end of Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of Mark. This is his last public teaching in Mark's Gospel. And it, it just has this sober warning. Beware of the scribes, the, the experts in the law. They, they, walk, they walk around these long robes to be noticed. They like the special greetings, the seats of honor. And worst of all, in their greed, did you notice, they take financial advantage of the most vulnerable of the society widows. So Jesus pronounces these frightening words, they will receive the greater condemnation. And with that, Jesus' public ministry in Mark's gospel really ends, and now he focuses his instruction on his disciples, his immediate followers. And the first thing he does is find a a foil, a, a contrast to those scribes. The first thing he does is create a juxtaposition to their showy spirituality. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. So he's in an area of the temple. And it's lined with 13 brass receptacles shaped like trumpets. And these 13 brass receptacles are where people, as I'm told, would put in their, mo- their money. And we're told here many rich people put in large sums of money. So you've got to imagine the sound of a clink, clank, 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 clink, clank, 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 clink, clank, 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 clink, clank, clank, clank. Large sums of many coins dropping into these brass receptacles and the loud noise being made, the impressive noise being made by the clink, clank, 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 clink, clank, 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 clink, clank, clank, clank. And then we read in verse 42, a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And the sound was tink. It's a minuscule amount. She just gave about one sixty-fourths of a typical day's wage. But in verse 43, we read, And he, Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, 
This poor widow has put in more. More than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Now, I want to draw with you two lessons from this story. Two lessons. One, one is more implicit, and one is right on the face of the passage. I want to do the implicit lesson first, and then the explicit lesson. So here's lesson number one, the more implicit one. Lesson number one, our giving, our giving is a vital spiritual issue. Our giving is a vital discipleship issue. You see, a crucial, thing, a crucial theme in Mark's gospel is discipleship. What it looks like to follow Jesus, to be one of his disciples. And in particular, what it looks like to follow him as a crucified Messiah. So do you see the lesson here in discipleship that's been set up by Jesus? Do you see the lesson this intentional juxtaposition, this intentional contrast that he set up. On the one hand, he says, beware the scribes, the experts in the law, the religious rock stars with the impressive robes, the showy prayers, who in their greed take advantage of widows, contrasted side by side with this poor widow who just goes, tink, tink, a religious nobody. A nobody to everybody else except Jesus. Do you see the lesson in discipleship? Isn't it saying, isn't he saying, be like her? In Mark's gospel, she is really presented to us as a model disciple. Jesus is saying, don't be like them. Don't be like the showy. Those who just desire attention for themselves. Think about it. Jesus could have highlighted many other people around him. There are people all around him in this scene. He could have highlighted many other qualities, very appropriately so. He could have highlighted many other aspects of our discipleship. But here he sits down and he watches what people are giving. Did you notice that? I just think it kind of had to be awkward. People are going to the receptacles there to give. And there's Jesus sitting there watching. (laughs) Why is he doing this? Well, I think we can learn this lesson that the issue of money and the issue of our giving in particular, they are vital windows into our spiritual lives. Vital windows into our discipleship. And we find this all over scripture, don't we? Like, here's an example, like when the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, here's what he wrote, 1 Timothy chapter 6, as for the rich in this present age. Now stop there for a moment. Please do not think this this does not somehow apply to you. If you have running water at home, if you have food in the pantry, if you have reliable electricity and sanitation, you are one of the rich in the world. You really are. You're one of the very richest in the world, the very richest in human history. So as for the rich in this present age, that's us. Charge them not to be haughty, not to be proud, nor, notice, to set their hopes, their trust, 
their trust on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Notice, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be generous and ready to share. Notice, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Did you see the, the sense in which money can be a window into our hearts? Did you catch that? It's really a look into where we're trusting where we're locating our, our hopes. He said we're either, we're either building our hopes, we're either locating our trust on the, quote, uncertainty of riches, the, the quicksand of our wealth, or we're locating our hopes, our trust in God who provides for us good things to enjoy. A sure bedrock for the future. So he says, teach them to be generous, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the future. And I do think he must be alluding to some degree to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus taught in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. These things, they just don't last here. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, he says, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he gives the reason for where your treasure is, there your heart. There your heart will be also. Your heart here biblically is the center of human personality, the mind and will and affections. It's, it's the steering wheel of your life. So think of that. Turn the steering wheel left, the car goes left. The heart biblically is the steering wheel of your life. Jesus is saying where your treasure is located, there the steering wheel turns. You see how important this issue is for our discipleship? If we're using earthly resources to store up heavenly treasure, where will our hearts go? Toward heaven, toward the things of God, toward eternity. Our, our finances, our, our money, our possessions, and our giving in particular, it's a window into our discipleship, a window into our hearts, and, and a director of our hearts, isn't it? So Jesus picks her example. Out of all those around him, in the temple area. Let me, sit, let me sit here and highlight her and teach us about discipleship. A vital spiritual issue for our lives. And you might ask me, okay, Tab, well, why, why is this such a vital spiritual issue? What, what theologically drives that? How, how theologically should I think about this? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's because, it's because God is the owner of everything and we are his managers, his stewards. That, that's the theological assumption here. God is the creator and ultimate owner of everything. As Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So God entrusts to us, doesn't he? He entrusts to us finances. He entrusts to us 
money, possessions, etc., and gives us the responsibility of managing these resources in accord with how he would direct us. Now, that includes providing for our needs. That includes providing for your needs. It includes, as we read, good things to enjoy to the glory of God. It includes saving for your future. Mentioned that last week. It's wise for us to save and plan for the future. And our stewardship includes our giving, our investment of his resources into his purposes. You think about it, stewardship, this idea of stewardship is not just financial. It encompasses all of life, doesn't it? Everything we have is entrusted to us by God. I was struck by that as we we're singing that song. It's your breath in my lungs that I pour out with praise. It's almost like I'm stewarding this moment of life as I praise you. So it is with our time, our energy, our degree of health, our spiritual gifts, our, our children. The gospel, the good news is a stewardship to proclaim. This is a theological reality that drives this vital spiritual issue for us. Don't we need this, friends? Don't we need this? We live in this consumer-driven society, this consumeristic culture, this consumeristic air we breathe. And so naturally what comes to my mind, I don't know about yours, what comes to my mind is that I think of these things as mine. I am the owner. I worked for them or what have you, so they're mine. And God says in his word, and this lady seems to have thought, there is. And so it's a vital spiritual issue for us. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, I've used this illustration in the past, it's kind of like the TV show. I don't think it's still out there anymore, but it's called, it was called Trading Spaces. Trading spaces. And what happened in trading spaces is you would, you would exchange homes with a friend, not to live in, but to redecorate. You would get, I'm told, $1,000 and the services of a carpenter and an interior designer. And you could redesign portions of your friend's house while simultaneously they were redesigning portions of your house. And then there was, at the end, a reveal. And you went back home to see what your friend did with your house. And they did the same at their house. And the reveal was to show what each of you had done with the other's house. Now, what if we did that trading spaces with, you know, wallets and checkbooks and credit cards and online bank accounts? I I would feel a wave of generosity come over me if I had someone else's checkbook. I I would go back to the offering box a a second time. I would visit maybe multiple times. You know, I've got so-and-so's checkbook and -and so-and-so's online banking. Let's just give it all to God's purposes. (laughs) Wouldn't it be different if we had someone else's checkbook? Well, in a sense, in a real sense, we do. We have God's. He has entrusted to us resources. 
calling us to manage them for our needs and for his purposes. And at the end, there will be a reveal where he rewards his stewards. Here in Mark 12, I imagine this is almost like a sneak preview into the reveal, isn't it? On the one hand, on the one hand, there are the scribes who will receive a greater condemnation. But then, but then Jesus says, I, I, I want you all to learn from a model disciple. He calls out her name, Jane Doe, please come to the front. And a, an unknown widow in her day comes down and he says, here she is. Here's the one I saw. You didn't see me sitting there, but I saw you. I saw what you did. I heard the tink, tink that you gave of your, out, of your, out of your need. And he commends her. And he says, my daughter, enter, enter into your reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. My point is simply, she's here in our Bibles as an illustration of the fact that our giving is a vital spiritual issue, a real part of our discipleship. So we should first just pause and ask, in light of her example, how do I think about my stuff? <laughs> do I say mainly it's mine? I have a closed fist around it my wages, my paycheck, my home. I was visiting some church members this past week and one of them said to me, Tab, we believe this home is the Lord's and for His purposes. So you tell us if there's some purpose it's needed for. I'm like, thank you. That's, that's exactly the mindset. How do I think about my home, my car? I'm not saying don't use it. I'm just saying, how do you think about it? To what degree, here's the question, to what degree do you see them as owned by God, ultimately, and trusted from Him to be used in His purposes? That's the question. Maybe you're here, you're a, you're a young person, you're a teenager, you're a student, you're thinking, look, I don't have any money, so this doesn't apply to me. Well, it does. God's entrusted to you time and talents, abilities. Ask yourself, how am I viewing those? Am I viewing them as on loan from God to be used by Him in how He directs? Maybe spiritual gifts He wants to use right here. The point being, our giving is a vital spiritual issue. That's what's implicit. That's what's, that's what's foundational here. Now, now, what's right on the surface? What's explicit? Well, here's lesson number two. Lesson number two, I would say, our giving is measured by our sacrifice. Our giving is a vital spiritual issue, number one. And then, corollary, our giving is measured by... Our sacrifice. Jesus says that this widow giving two little copper coins, tink, tink, has put in more than all the others with their 
clanking, clanking, clanking sound. How can that be? Shouldn't you be asking that? That's crazy. What kind of accountant are you, Jesus? How can her minuscule contribution be greater than all the others? Much more good can be accomplished by the large amounts they just gave. Much more ministry can be financed by all the money they just gave. So Jesus, what kind of accounting program is this? You should try QuickBooks or something. How can he possibly evaluate her giving as greater? Well, the answer is in verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. In other words, in Jesus' eyes, in, in Jesus the CPA's eyes, the amount we give is actually measured by the amount of sacrifice entailed. The amount we give is measured by, in his eyes, the amount of sacrifice our giving represents. Now, just to be clear, the Lord is not calling us to necessarily sell all we have and give it all away. He's not calling you to take a vow of poverty today. Now, we will have no cards with a vow of poverty that you have to check off the box and drop it in this, the offering box in the back. No, of course not. Let's take the whole counsel of Scripture in view. Steve's going to teach us about that more next week. There is much wisdom in saving for the future, much necessity of saving for things like retirement. Study the book of Proverbs. You'll find the importance of wise planning. There is the purpose of enjoying good things to the glory of God as we read. So what does Jesus mean here? Well, keep this in context. Where is Jesus heading? Mark 12, Passover. He's heading to a cross. He's heading to a sacrifice for our sins, is he not? And so what is discipleship, if you recall, to Jesus in Mark's gospel? What is discipleship? It is one who takes up their own cross and follows him. Right? That's discipleship in the Gospels. One who takes up their own cross, dies to themselves, and follows a crucified Savior. Friends, she is a living illustration of what it looks like to be a crucified, a follower, rather, of a crucified Messiah. Not, not because, as Mark Dever rightly points out, not because God wants us to hurt, but because God wants us to trust. That's the point. Not because God is trying to squeeze you like a turnip. <laughs> He's not trying to make you hurt. He's trying to help us trust. Jesus here is calling us to a level of giving that impacts our level of trusting. I shared last week about my own struggles here. And I appreciated friends who said to me afterwards they could relate. I'm glad I'm not the only one. I mentioned how I'm 50 years old. We've been saving for retirement for quite a while, but now, now it's just more real to me. It's less abstract, more real. Look about those, fu those future days thinking, man, they're coming faster than I realized. 
And so I get preoccupied with, are we saving enough? Have we saved enough? Get preoccupied with, what's the rate of return we might earn in the future? Get preoccupied with, how fast might that money get drawn down? Desperately needing Steve's seminar next weekend. The problem is not in my saving. The problem is not in my planning for retirement. You should do those. You must do those. The problem is, where am I locating my trust? Can you relate? She's here not for God to say to you, I want you to hurt. (laughs) She's here because God is saying, I want you to trust. I want you to trust. To trust in him more than we trust in our stuff. That's why Jesus is so jazzed about this widow. She has nothing, puts in everything, not, not as a model accountant for us. It's because she's a model of trust. She's trusting God to care for her better than her stuff. And isn't that what we saw in Hebrews 13? Keep your life free from love of money. Not keep your life free from money. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. She's a wonderful illustration of that. She's living out Hebrews 13 in advance. So God is saying, friends, to you and me, be like her. Be like her. Not not in a vow of poverty, but in a posture of heart that trusts God more than money. Now, in saying all this, I, I I know there might be some questions out there. And so I want to imagine that you and I were sitting down over a cup of coffee at Starbucks and we're just chatting. And I assume we're both drinking regular dark roast, no cream, no sugar, as God intended the coffee bean to be enjoyed. (laughs) Right? I'm just going to assume that. I'm going to think the best right now. Okay? We're sitting there and I just imagine you saying to me, Tab, I have a few questions from the sermon. I say, okay, tell me. And you say to me, okay, so how much are you saying I should give, Tab? How much? And I would say, well, per this passage, you need to ask, what does Jesus-motivated, God-trusting sacrifice look like? I can't answer that for you. You have to ask, what does Jesus-motivated trusting in the faithfulness of God kind of sacrifice look like? That will look different for each one of us. Jesus here is asking, how much are you trusting before he's asking your question? How much should I be giving? The question from Mark 12 is, what level of giving impacts your level of trusting? And then I imagine you asking a follow-up question. Okay, Tab, thanks. I got that from last week. You're not being very helpful still. Tab, are you saying, for instance, more specifically, that I should be tithing or giving a tenth part of my income? And I'd say, okay, well, good question. Here's my reply. A tithe is not a law we must keep today. Okay, if you're asking us, if you're asking me, does God require a tithe? The the answer is... No. 
At least the partial answer is no. The fuller answer would be this. The call of the New Testament is on grace-motivated generosity. That's the call of the New Testament. That's, that's 1 Timothy chapter 6. Grace-motivated generosity. But I do think we should ask, what would generosity look like to the inspired New Testament writer? What would generosity be like in their minds? And here's why I say that. Because statistics say that the average American Christian gives, do you want to guess how much of their income? About 2%. Now, here's my question. I don't mean this in any way to be condemnatory. If I'm a New Testament writer growing up in a culture steeped with systemic tithing, right? If I'm a New Testament writer inspired by the Holy Spirit to say, in light of the cross, on your side of the cross, God calls you to generosity. And you say, yes, Tab, uh, I gave 2%, though I live in the most prosperous country in history. Am I going to go, wow, sheep, that's amazing. I used to give one-tenth of my sheep. I mean, you're amazing. I think that's the better question. What would New Testament generosity look like for us as American Christians in light of the background of the New Testament and the principles in the Old Testament. So, so for me and Sung, so for me and Sung, we, we approach a tithe as a great starting point for gospel-motivated giving. That, that's how we like to think of it as a principle, a law never, a principle as a starting point to say, Lord, here's where we're going to start, and by your grace, we're going to build from there. And God's been faithful to let us do that. Now, that won't be doable for everybody. That won't be. You might be sitting here thinking, Tab, that would be an incredible stretch. I would be eating, you know, rice and beans for a year. And I would say, remember, God measures by the sacrifice. So the smallest amount, the tink, tink, he might say, is huge and I shall reward you. Right? The smallest amount matters to him. But for others, that, that starting point might, might barely be making a dent. You might say, I wouldn't even notice that. And I'd say, praise God for how he's blessed you. And I would say, revert back to question number one. What level of giving impacts your level of trusting? And you might say, okay, Tab, question number three, though. I have one more question for you, as your coffee's almost gone. Why should I give generously then? Why? And I would say, ah, now you're asking the most important question. Now you're asking the most important question. Certainly to the glory of God. Certainly what we've seen, that our hearts are directed by our treasure. And our giving is a vital spiritual discipleship issue. But the most important why, I think, is found in a different passage. And that is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You don't need to turn there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is reminding the Corinthian Christians of what they had pledged to do in giving toward the impoverished believers in Jerusalem. 
and he's taking up an offering for these impoverished believers in Jerusalem, and he wants the wealthier Corinthian Christians to follow through on their pledge to give. So he's writing to them, and here in this part of 2 Corinthians, he reminds them of the crazy Macedonian Christians. And here's what he, well, not, not quite there yet, not quite there yet. He reminds these crazy, he reminds the Corinthians of the crazy Macedonians and the grace, he says, God has given to them that, quote, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Do you catch that recipe? Severe affliction, severe hardship, extreme poverty, abundance of joy led to massive generosity. Now he's saying, Corinthians, I want you to be aware of the grace God gave the Macedonians. And then he says this to the Corinthians. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act, this act of grace, this act of giving. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. But you should ask, why, Paul? Why is that going to compel us to be like those crazy Macedonians and this faith-filled widow of Mark 12? Why? Here's the answer, verse 9. For, because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Do you see the ultimate why, friends? Do you feel that in your soul? The ultimate why is God the Son became poor to make us spiritually rich. God the Son left eternal glories. He left the joys of intertrinitarian fellowship and joy and love. The love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the glory He had from the foundation, well, from eternity past, actually. He left that joy and that glory and that mutual love. He left that to be born as a baby in a backwater town called Bethlehem. Grew up in Nazareth. To live a life of obedience in our place. And then give His life on a Roman cross for our sins. That's what Paul is meaning when he says he became poor. He became poor like that in the incarnation, the enfleshment of God. Why? That we might become rich in Christ. That we might become rich in knowing sins forgiven. We might become rich in wrath being atoned for. We might become rich in being adopted as God's children. Knowing Him as our Father who loves us and provides for our needs. Friends, we are rich through His poverty. And Paul is saying that good news fuels generosity in our lives. In other words, we're like, we're like little children at Christmas, aren't we? who have received the greatest gifts we could imagine. The red fire truck, the new bike, the, the trip to Disneyland. Amazing gifts, amazing generosity from our parents. I couldn't believe all that you gave me. And then we go to our room and we get our favorite teddy bear and we wrap it up 
And I'll say, here, I, I got you a gift, mom and dad. What are we doing? We're just trying to somehow respond to the overwhelming generosity we've already received. That's all we're doing. We're saying, God, I can't believe you made me so rich in Christ. Let me trust you. Let me respond to this amazing, overflowing generosity of the grace of one who for our sake became poor so that in him, in Christ, we might become rich. And so we want to close by celebrating that. We want to close by having that good news impact our hearts. We want to close by rejoicing that one became poor to make us eternally rich in Christ. So would the music team come and those who are going to serve us the Lord's Supper, please be prepared to do so. Two brief words of instruction before we celebrate the bread and the cup. This supper is for those who've already turned to Jesus and believe. So if you're here and you've not yet turned to Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. It is an honor to have you here. Friend, this supper is for those who've already believed. Please just pass the trays down the row. There's no problem in doing so. But I hope you're hearing the significance of what Jesus has done for you. I hope you're hearing how one became spiritually poor, as it were, that you might be truly rich in Christ. One came to obey in your place, to die a shameful death, to bear the judgment of God in our place. And then he rose from the grave, has ascended or returned to heaven and invites you right now to come to him and be rich in him. Not that your bank account's going to go up tomorrow, but that you will be eternally rich, spiritually rich in Christ. I urge you to come to him. Believe him. For those who are taking the Lord's Supper, please take the bread, please take the cup, and hang on to both. We'll take the Lord's Supper together. But friend, as you hang on to them, be intentional to commune with the risen Christ and enjoy him, thank him, trust him as the one who became poor to make you eternally rich in him. Would the ushers please come?